Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode we spoke to the novelist Colin McCann. We spoke to Colin again remotely so please forgive us for the audio quality uh, about his fiction, about his teaching and about his new genre-busting novel A Paragon. It's a great episode, we hope you enjoy it. Welcome Colin to Always Take Notes. Um, I wondered before we got on to your new novel, A Paragon, whether we could talk about your journalism days. Um, you started off for the Irish Press Group and had a, your own column by the age of 21. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your, your early writing days in that field? Yeah, for sure. Um, my father was a journalist who was with the Irish Press Group and he was features editor of the, um, of the evening press and literary editor. Uh, he was also um, a footballer who had played for Charlton Athletic in, 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 in London and he wrote uh, kids' books. And I was uh, interested from a, um, an early age in, um, in uh, watching him uh, create uh, these books out, out, out of nowhere. There was, it was a, a character by the name of Georgie Good uh, who uh, was a, 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 a traveller in Britain. And it was a pretty extraordinary um, series of things. And my father, uh, as a journalist, um, sort of encouraged me to read these books at a young age. And then, believe it or not, I started reporting local soccer matches in Dublin about the age of 12. Um, so I would go from place to place and Bray Wanderers down to Tech and, uh, and, and across town and uh, then phone in a, a report. So I was a, I was a pretty young uh, journalist um, at the time and then I started uh, more or less full-time when I was about 17 and actually left it uh, when I was 21 and went to the United States to um, to try and write a novel where I failed miserably at doing so. And I saw this, this comment, this was in your Wikipedia profile, but saying that um, working for the Irish papers was a, a good founding for a career writing fiction. And I was wondering, was, was that a slightly tongue-in-cheek comment about the, the veracity of what was going on in the papers, or was this just that that kind of writing was like a, a good honing of your skill in the kind of classic Hemingway model or, or so forth? Well, uh, I, you know, the Irish papers were really interesting. Like, um, I remember when I first started working there, there was um, another man on the, on the copy editing desk who everybody was was uh, mortally afraid of if your copy went across his desk. His name happened to be John Banville, uh, and um, then there were all there were all sorts of writers who were working in the newspapers. It was a highly sort of literary time in the sort of nineteen seventies, early nineteen eighties. Um, you know, anybody who was involved in, in in literature in Ireland also worked in the in the newspapers. So. Um, you know, that comment uh, was not really tongue-in-cheek. It was really a, an extraordinary time to be in the newspapers, to learn how to do research, to learn how to do news and copy, to who, what, where, when, how and why. But then at the same time, to be around these characters like, uh, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, Edna O'Brien would sometimes come into the office and Maeve Binchy would sometimes come into uh, the, 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 the offices. And, and it was... Um, uh, it was a wonderful time. We didn't know it at the time, but um, uh, it was per a perfect sort of preparation for uh, a literary life. In terms of specific things that you learned about crafting prose, what would you say that you, the kind of tips that you picked up from working as a journalist? Um, it's hard to say. You know, when I teach writing, I, I, I tell people I'm not going to be able to teach you anything. Um, and they're always scared by, by, by this. 
Um, but really what I do when I teach writing is I teach the virtues of, uh, of fire and stamina and desire and perseverance. And I think those were the things that, 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 that I learned. I didn't necessarily learn anything about punctuation or, uh, you know, the, but I got a feel for, uh, you know, how a story works. I got a feel for how it should um, operate um, on people. And um, so that, that was good. But also, I think I learned, I learned how to listen. You know, I was a middle-class Dublin kid, and I was getting sent out to, to areas of the city that I didn't really know all that well. Um, and it was a different time. You know, you go out to the flatlands in Dublin and there were, where there was a big heroin epidemic in the late 1970s, early 1980s. And um, you would hear all sorts of different voices. So I, I suppose I learned that there were so many voices and so many stories. And were your ambitions, literary ambitions, from the get-go to write fiction? Or, I mean, you, you've kind of circled, I suppose, in that a paragon has these elements of, of non-fiction in it. But were you clear that journalism was a stage that you were moving through and you had other, other targets in your sights? I didn't, I've always wanted to be a journalist. I am a journalist now still. And one of the things that, that, that I think about a lot these days is that I don't think that the poet has a higher place in the, uh, in the, in the, in the literary ranking than the prose writer or the prose writer is better than the journalist or that the journalist is better than the, 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 the playwright. I think uh, we're all there. We're all writing. We're storytelling. And the, and the word should be put in the right place at the right time whether you're working for uh, you know a small country newspaper or whether you're 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 doing something for um, a, a large uh, you know a large publisher um, to me it's all about texture uh, and 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 writing so i don't make any particular uh, value for the um, for the storyteller over anybody else when you went to write a novel you said it, it failed miserably what what happened there oh my word i was 21 years old full of fire and vim, thinking that I was going to be like Jack Kerouac. And I bought a big roll of paper and I put it into the typewriter and I started typing away. And at the end of that summer, I had about a foot and a half of absolute gibberish. And I had to look at myself and say, you do not know what you're doing. Uh, This is very different. In in what dimension, like of pages piled up? Oh, there was was, like, that was it. I was, I I was just... and, and by the way, the A key wasn't working very well and the E key wasn't working very well. And, and, and when I looked at it, I just I really had to say to myself, I didn't I didn't have anything. And I had to question myself, what am I going to do? Am I going to go back to Dublin and, and, and go back to the newspapers, which was an option? Um, or uh, am I going to do something a little bit more reckless, which is kind of what I ended up doing? Um, I. I became a, um, I, I got on a bicycle and uh, took it across the United States for um, a year and a half. And that was an incredible journey that really helped me out in, 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 in extraordinary ways. And was that, I, it's, was that kind of, again, conceived in this sort of Kerouacian mold, although maybe at slightly lower speed? Or were you, were you just deciding to do the trip? Um, yeah, at the time I thought I was. I, I was uh, doing a Kerouac sort of thing, but I was also just very curious about the world. I also um, thought long and hard about maybe even just um, walking across the uh, United States, but that would have taken me about three or four years. And the bicycle turned out to be a much better uh, form for me. <laughs> were you working uh, on things while you were 
cycling along as in obviously not at the same time but uh were you writing at the same time as, as doing that trip i was i was writing a column for the um for the evening press uh and you know and and you know getting uh 50 quid a week or whatever it happened to be um and it was um uh, you know and then i'd go from place to place i, I worked um digging ditches for a little while uh, in idaho where there were forest fires and then i painted houses for people and um, I, I entered what I now think of as that sort of vast democracy of stories and storytelling that and, and I would meet people and they would tell me their stories and I would sort of carry them. I, I would I would chew them up and take them down inside me and carry them um, down the road. Um, I didn't realize it till, till, till years later, but I was learning how to really, really, really listen to um, other people. Um, and I always think that 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 young people. Uh, you know, when I'm talking like from the age of like 17 to 25, they should always do something that doesn't compute. My bicycle journey was the thing that didn't compute because there I was. I had a job. I was a journalist. I was doing all these things. And then I just took off. And there were days, I'll be honest with you, there were days when I, I actually said to myself, uh, you know, I am, uh, what am I doing? I don't have any insurance. I'm out here in the middle of nowhere. It's pissing rain. I'm cold. I'm hungry, you know. <laughs> and um but in the end it was it was the most extraordinary thing for me to do and i think it made me into a writer well i was going to ask kind of on that on that note um you know we often have have you know very established writers like yourself on the show and it they'll regale stories of their of their early youth that sometimes seem to be seen through slightly you know nostalgic or rose tinted vision so it's very refreshing to hear you kind of say that yeah there were times when you felt when you felt a bit lost, did, yeah, did, was it, what what you know? Did the the moments of, of glory and story collecting outweigh those of sitting in the rain, despairing? Yeah, they're the ones. Words? They're the ones that you remember. I mean, I got knocked off my bicycle a couple of times. I got a coke can in the side of the head one time. I got beaten up uh, down in South Texas at one stage, um, but none of that really. Uh, that sort of pales in in comparison to. Um, the, uh, the 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 wonderful things that happened to me. Um, I mean, just these random uh, moments where you'd meet somebody in a in a diner, or somebody would give you twenty dollars, or somebody would 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 tell you of a place to sleep, or they'd allow you into their house, and um, you know, and and it was a very friendly place. In fact, I'm very interested in maybe getting back up on a bicycle sometime soon, and going and retracing my route. Simply because I'd like to see if the America that was then, which is 1986, 1987, is the same America that we have in uh, 20, what is it, 2020? Yeah, um, it, it would be interesting to, 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 to look at and retrace my route. What was the journey then from traveling across America to teaching English as a foreign language? So uh, I, I, I finished on the bicycle. I went back down to Texas where I worked um, uh, on a, a, um, uh, a system with them, um, uh, juvenile delinquents. I was a, I, I was a wilderness counselor with juvenile delinquents, possibly making them more delinquent than they already were. But um, I did that for about two years. Then I went to university and then I met my wife and uh, she wanted to go to Japan to study Japanese. She's of Italian distraction, distraction, <laughs> extraction. And... Um, she uh, 
she and I went there and lived for, for, for a year and a half, which was a good year and a half because it was quite lonely in a way. There weren't a whole lot of people around. We were in this um, more rural town in, in Kyushu. Um, and um, I got a chance to, 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 to work. And, and that's when my first collection of stories called Fishing the Slow Black River, that's when, when, when they came, came out. Um, and, you know, it was, I was very lucky. It was a very small collection of stories. It was very quiet. I think there's a lot of pressure on young writers today to make it big and to make it fast and, and to come out of the gates really quickly, uh, which is something that, that, that um, I don't think serves younger writers very well. I was lucky. I got out with a collection of short stories. There was only like 2,000 of them printed. And, uh, you know, it was, there wasn't a lot of noise about them. It was an, I sort of eased into the literary life. I was wondering, in, in terms of blunt practicalities, how, did you have work authorization for the US? Like, how were you able to get a visa and, and linger and stuff like that? I say, because I, I did my graduate you, study in the US and then was, you know, had to leave and things like that. So how, yeah, how did that work? Are you with the CIA? No, no, no. What? <laughs> <But> <laughs> were you, no. uh, were you uh, under the radar? I was. I was under the, let, let's just say I was under the radar for a little while, yeah. And then I got a, um, a, a, a what's known as a Donnelly visa, one of the, 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 the lottery visas. Uh -huh. And then I, got, um, then I got married and then everything became, uh, you know, everything became legal um, at, at, at that stage. But yeah, there was a huge amount of people whom I know from my generation in Ireland who, who went over to the United States. And, and, and for a long time, they weren't able to get back just simply because they built their lives over in, in the States. And, and, um, and, but I, I, I was lucky I sort of got out from underneath that. You've written um, short fiction and longer fiction sort of simultaneously throughout your career. But after the experience of your first novel and the reams of paper that were unusable, when did you decide after you'd published a collection of short stories to give novels another go? Oh, it was the, the, that, that was it from, 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 from the, from the get-go. So I wrote two books before I published my first book. They were both awful, and thank God they never got published. They're still in, they're still in a drawer somewhere. But uh, once I had the taste of it, um, I knew I would never, uh, I would never give it up. There was a part of me even that I wallpapered a bathroom uh, with uh, rejection slips, and um, How so many did you have? I, 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 I thought I could, yeah, I could look up and think of them when I, at, at various times. And um, but I, um, uh, I, I had the, I had the desire, I had the taste for it then, and I sort of knew that 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 I wouldn't lose the taste for it. It's one of the things that when I look at my potential students i look them in the eyes and say okay do you have it how much do you want it how much are you, are, are you going to show me how much that you actually really truly want uh, this thing and uh, i i can pretty much assure you that 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 those who have a hundred percent of the desire and maybe only 90 percent of the talent will be much better than those that have a hundred percent of the talent and only 90 percent of the desire so much of it is about uh, stamina and and almost being, I don't know, almost being an athlete in relation to this. You got to, you know, to sit on your arse for eight hours solid is not as easy uh, as it seems, and to fight the the terror of the blank page, it takes something peculiar to be able to do that sort of thing. Um, so the taste for it was 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 with me fairly early on. What were the 
the ways that your writing was initially picked up? Did you acquire an agent or were you sending stuff to slush piles? Like how, how did you initially break into publication? Yeah, I was sending stuff out to slush piles. Then I found uh, an agent and then I got, you know, um, some rejection slips. And just when I was at the point of thinking, I'm going to give it, you know, I'm only going to write. I don't care about this stuff anymore. I'm not going to send stuff out anymore. I got published in a tiny literary journal in Texas, in the University of Texas, a a literary journal called Analecta. And within two weeks, um, some agents had, had had read that. And then the, 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 the famous, um, uh, agent Giles Gordon, who passed away about, uh, 10 years ago, um, from Scotland, um, picked me up and, and, and I had a publisher for me within two weeks. It was kind of an extraordinary thing that happened. Um, so I always tell my students, yeah, take whatever publication you can get. And, you know, because there's not just, you won't be just telling one story your whole life. You'll be telling, you'll be telling hundreds, if not thousands of stories, if you're a real writer. I read an interview with you where you said you used to think that writing about real people showed a a failure of the writer's imagination. When did you decide that that was not true? Because then obviously in 2003, um, you wrote about Rudolf Nureyev and you've written about real people a lot since. See, this is why you should never trust a writer because they always shoot their mouths off and say say things. So, so nobody should trust a single thing that I'm that 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 I'm saying today because the landscape always changes. Um, you know, uh, this the thing is, yeah, I did say that, and 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 within six months, I was writing a, a, about Rudolf Nureyev, and um, and and I've spent the last best part of twenty years, uh, you know, working in uh, f- fiction, non-fiction, a sort of hybrid blend of all these things, whether it be Philippe Petit, um, in Let the Great World Spin, whether it be Frederick Douglass in a novel called Transatlantic or the new, the new novel Paragon, where I take two characters from, um, Israel and Palestine, real life characters, heroes of mine and, 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 and write about them. Um, but, um, I do think that this is a really important question right now. You know, what is true and what is not true? What is fiction? What is not fiction? What is a fact? Wh- where, what does a fact serve? Are facts just mercenary things? Um, and, and what is texture? Um, and, and, and these are, um, you know, questions du jour, not just in literature, but obviously in politics and also in the, co- in the corporate realm of things. Um, and I think we're asking very important things right now. Um, and we've been asking them, like poets have been asking them for years and years and years. And, and now it's become, you know, a central part of uh, the cultural question. You know, how do we put our finger on what is quote unquote true? Uh, and, and a lot of it for me comes down to texture. Um, and so for me, the blend between fiction and nonfiction allows me to do the tiny and the epic both at the same time. So to enter sort of anonymous corners of human experience at some time, or supposedly anonymous corners of human experience, and yet also write about something big. Um, and, and so for me, this is where, where, where fiction achieves its highest form in that it can 
it can be both huge and tiny uh, at the same time and get to, uh, I suppose, what Faulkner would have called, uh, you know, the human heart in conflict with itself. And did you see yourself as both as you were developing as a writer and now as working in an explicitly Irish literary tradition? I, I, you know, I sort of comments you made about your father and Joyce and, and Bloomsday and things like that. And I was wondering, you know, that clearly influenced there, but did you also feel yourself to have like a peer group of like younger Irish writers, you know, Kevin Barry or, or people like that? Like how, how attached to the, the Irish thread do you feel you are with your work? Well, that's a great question. And, and, and the, 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 the answer is I'm not really sure. I mean, um, I started out being really interested uh, in American literature. The beat stuff was the stuff that propelled me, um, you know, on the road. Um, and I didn't really get to my Joyce until my mid to late 20s. Um, but there were Irish writers like Ben de Kiley, whom I admired enormously uh, at uh, a young age. And then also, I'm very aware that I'm a person of two countries. You know, I was born and raised in Ireland, left in my, my, in my 20s, and then I've spent the vast majority of the time uh, in New York since then. Um, and, um, you know, maybe, maybe I'm a hybrid of sorts. But if, if someone were to put a, a gun to my head and say, tell me what you are as a writer, I can and only ever will be um, an Irish writer. Um, we get our voice from the voices of, of others. And, you know, um, when I think about all those great voices uh, that uh, came along uh, before me and also the voices that are there after me, like Kevin Barry is a great uh, uh, example because, you know, Kevin is shaping uh, the Irish voice right now. My particular relationship to Ireland was to write a lot outside of Ireland. I've written like about Northern Ireland and, I've, and I have written some quote unquote Irish novels, but most of the time uh, my Ireland sort of um, is outside of the immediate borders of the, 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 the 32 counties. Um, and in fact, I'm reminded of Joyce when he said, um, you know, uh, he, he said when he was in exile, he said, I've been so long out of Ireland that I can all at once hear her voice in everything. And there's times when I feel that I'm writing, even if I'm writing about Israel and Palestine, it has to essentially be uh, an Irish novel. There is also now the question of living in a global, uh, a global environment um, and you know, how much we are multitudinous. I like Whitman's idea that we are large, we contain multitudes. Um, Part of the problem, I think, in in political terms, certainly, is that uh, everybody thinks that you're only one thing. We're so much more than one thing. You now, uh, whether that be in terms of race, whether that be in terms of gender, whether that be in terms of nationality, um, I think uh, we have to re-nuance ourselves to say that, uh, you know, as Whitman said, do I contradict myself? Very well, then, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. So in many ways, I feel like I, I, I contain those multitudes. But if you had to reduce it down, um, I would say, there I am, I'm an Irish writer. And how do you, could you link that back to the kind of question of texture and multitudes? I mean, I'm sort of struck by the form of a paragon, of course, is different kind of shards of prose which come together at different points. How does the complexity of what you're writing about echo in, it, in your writing's form? Um, you know, 
I think ultimately my voice is, 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 is an Irish voice. I'm interested in rhythm. I'm interested in sound. And, and, and um, I, would, uh, I would quite happily sacrifice meaning for music. Because um, I, I, I'm really interested in getting at the music of, of the language in order to make people feel, uh, to feel things, to feel new, to feel shifted. So in writing a paragon, um, I, I wanted, um, I, I kind of felt like, this is kind of weird, but, but I, I felt like the conductor of an orchestra of like musicians who were complete strangers to me. And these, these musicians kept flooding into the theater and playing their instruments and saying, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. And then um, every day something new would, 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 would come along. Of course, I was in new territory for myself. I was in Israel and Palestine. I spent five years researching it and, and, and doing it. But um, more than any other novel I've written, I felt that I was writing a piece of music. Now, whether that was going to be a sonata or whether it was going to be a song was a question. But um, eventually for me, it became, um, I hope, a symphony. Um, and I'm well aware that that might, might sound pretentious. Oh, I was writing a grand symphony. It's a small symphony too. It's a symphony about two girls who get, um, who, who, whose lives are lost um, in a conflict. And um, I think um, uh, I was trying to capture a music so that we could all sort of enter that particular music. So the follow-up question that, that I wanted to ask about that was about um, the whole university creative writing scene. So you, you have this teaching role now. Um, how did you get involved in that? And then also, I'd be interested in your views, you know, more generally on on the business, as it were. So we've had we've had a number of people on. We've had um, the directors of the creative writing school run by Curtis Brown, the literary agent in London, and also the one run by Faber. We had Kylie Reed, the novelist, on recently, who talked about being at the Iowa Writers Workshop. Um, and we've had all sorts of, of takes on creative writing education, both positive and and some less so positive. And just be interested as someone, you know, who's who's involved in the system what do you what's been your experience of that well i've been teaching for um about uh, at the um, mfa level for about uh, 15 years um i taught at, at, at other levels before that but i've been teaching writing for about 15 years and um you know uh, i think it's the mfa is a good place to go simply to learn how to make mistakes you you, you get a community uh, you get readers, you develop friends, and you go there and you have two years uh, under the tutelage of some people who, who uh, may or may not know what they're doing. But really, it's all up to you, the writer, uh, and, and what you're going to put into it. I, I, I really firmly believe that I can't teach anybody you know, what, uh, what plot is. I don't even know what plot is myself. Uh, I can't teach things about how to write character or how to write dialogue. But I'll look at a story and I'll say, well, this is right and this is not right. And, um, and, and, and um, it's, a, it's a, I suppose, a passion field for me. That's like, you know, I want to see you grow. I want to see your passion grow. I want to see your voice grow. I want to see you. Kurt Vonnegut says um, we should be continually jumping off of cliffs and developing wings on our way down. 
I, th I think that applies to riders so well. We've got to jump off the cliff and develop wings on the way down. And there's no better place to do it than in a, a good MFA program. Now, some of them are not so good because some of them are just cash cows for, 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 for universities. And, it, and it, it breaks my heart to see young people who are not going to make it in the riding field, you know, spend whatever, 50 grand, 100 grand, um, you know, uh, and coming out the, the far end uh, saying that they're, they're going to be able to, to, to write prose. No, that's not going to happen. But if you have the right sort of teachers, they'll inspire you with, um, you know, they'll inspire you with, 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 um, with, with that, that fire. They'll be the spark uh, behind you. So is that what you look for really in students when you're taking them on? Just a kind of passion for the, for the subject rather than any particular, I don't know. They got style. No, they got to have the talent too. I'm looking for language. I'm looking for people who are saying things differently. Mm -hmm. um, I'm looking for somebody who can turn a sentence inside out. Uh, I'm looking for someone who can 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 wake something in me or rock me uh, or distract me. You know, uh, good writing for me is all about somebody who knocks me off my comfortable perch and sort of um, teaches me something new. I might have known it, but I might not have recognized it. So I'm looking for somebody who has that sort of talent too. Um, you know, there's, there's never any, ever one, uh, one type of writer. You know, you can have a social activist, you can have somebody who's, who, who's very much like into auto fiction and doing all these things. I don't look for any particular, uh, you know, type, but it's just, for me, it's, it's like a feeling. It's like being, again, it's like being a musician. You want to find the, the right guitarist to accompany you. You've got you to gotta, like, see her or listen to her. You've got to you know, find the right violinist who's going to come along and you know, accompany uh, you. And, and, and um, then you can recognize it in people. I, often I, I can recognize it, I don't know, within, within a couple of days, uh, you sort of know if somebody's going to have it or not. Sometimes you know it straight away from the first sentence. Um, you know, when I first read, read Kevin Barry, for instance, uh, I knew um, that, 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 that he was going to be one of our literary greats. Phil Cly, who wrote, um, uh, who won the National Book Award, was a student of mine. Um, and, and when he first applied, the very first sentence of uh, his application of one of his stories was, we shot dogs. We called it Operation Scooby. And I knew from those few words that this guy had a voice. It was it was immediate and it was apparent, um, and it was sort of thrilling as well. So you're looking for that sort of thrill, the the one that knocks you, knocks you sideways a little bit. If you're enjoying Always Take Notes, please consider supporting the podcast on Patreon. Even a small monthly donation, the price of a cup of coffee, will help us pay our producer and social media editor. It will also cover our hosting fees and go towards upgrading our equipment. If you donate $10, you will receive a bundle of successful story pitches to a range of publications, including The Guardian Long Read, National Geographic, The Times and GQ. Different in style, length and tone, the document will show an aspiring writer what has worked in the real world. You can find our page at www.patreon.com slash alwaystakenotes. And in terms of your life now, how much of your time is spent teaching and how much is spent working on your own work? Oh, gosh, my life is a mess right now, man. I mean, um, I uh, spend I'm, I'm off this semester because I'm, I'm, I'm promoting uh, my new novel. Um, but um, I'm also 
I also work for a, um, I'm the president uh, of a nonprofit organization called Narrative Four, uh, which is a story exchange organization for young people uh, around the world. So um, I'd say a third of my life is with teaching, a third of my life is with Narrative Four, and a third of my life is um, sitting down to, to, to write the books. Um, but when the books come along, um, then, you know, uh, it took me five years to write a Paragon. The last year was almost exclusively everything was about the writing of a Paragon. Uh, sometimes at the very end of the novel, up to, believe it or not, like 15, 16 hours a day. In the beginning, you're scattered around, you know, you're grabbing a, an hour here, an hour there, you're not sure what you're doing. You're trying to find the voice, you're trying to find the, the direction. By the end of it all, you become so focused that um, you can work for hours and hours and hours at, at, at a time. And um, one of the rules of the podcast is that we always ask about money. Um, and be as specific or as general as you like, but how is your income divided between teaching and, and writing novels? So um, you, want, you want me to tell you about all the millions that are coming in left, right and centre? <laughs> uh, I wish. Um, I have to say that I work for... My, my, my work for the nonprofit is um, is not paid as a labor of love, love and a, a labor of the heart. Uh, and then I work, say, five years on a novel, two years on a collection of stories, and then um, the money would come in from that. But at the base of all this, and the very important base for all of this, is the teaching, um, which is a you know a salary and it has insurance and it has those things that 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 sort of allow you to do the other things in your life. So I'm very grateful uh, for the teaching. I think it's harder these days for novelists to make money. We've become more like musicians in the sense that uh, a lot of it is about appearances, whether that be appearances at uh, universities or um, in certain societies. Um, I do a lot of um, I do a lot of talks, um, and 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 I kind of like doing that because well, I'm a bit of a ham at times. <laughs> um, but I also like engaging with people and I also like meeting people. Um, I like I like the world and I like sort of living my life uh, out loud. And that's another reason why I also enjoy teaching so much, because you see these young people coming, coming along and you know that they're the ones who are going to shape the landscape of literature for the next you know decade or so. When that happens. Uh, there's nothing. There's nothing better than when you you know come upon one of those young writers and you think, ah, she is going to, you know, really, you know, she'll be read generations from now. And when you find that person, it's really thrilling. Could you tell us about the experience of Let the Great World Spin and what it was like? You know, that novel did very well. It picked up awards and widely translated. What was it like, kind of being at the centre of that? And when did you know that it had really, it was really taking off? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I had a feeling that it might take off just shortly after um, it was published. And then about uh, five months after that, um, I won the National Book Award. And um, I knew that that, that, that things were going to uh, change for me, um, that I would be traveling quite a lot with that book for, for a while um, and, and, and talking about it. Um, Essentially, um, you know, uh, I, I still cleave to the idea that I have to write. Um, yes, I have to get out there. Yes, I have to travel. Yes, I have to meet people. Yes, I might even lo lose a year um, of my, my writing life. But um, in the end, I will always return um, to the, 
the page. And, you know, you have a success. Uh, it also sets you up for next time round. You m most likely will have some, some form of failure. Um, and it's been really interesting to, to um, you know, to travel around with, with different sort of books and you can feel uh, how, they, um, how they're going to work and how they, how they might. Some books are big and loud and some books are just very quiet and you don't even travel with them. Did it change your relationship with your agent or your publishers in any way? So I have, a, I have an incredible relationship with my uh, agent, Sarah Shalfran, from the Wiley Agency. She's a friend, she's a mentor, she's a reader. Uh, she's a person who uh, who has looked after me for a long, long time, and she's seen me grow from you know having two thousand copies of my my books published to 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 more than that, and uh, and to where I happen to be sitting very luckily now, and hopefully with with humility. Um, I I also have a great relationship with Alexandra Pringle from Bloomsbury, who is not only one of the great publishers in the world, but also one of the great personalities of the publishing world. I think she's absolutely extraordinary. I feel sort of uh, graced by the presence of these two people. Of course, I have uh, editors in the um, United States and I have editors in Germany and France and places like that. And it's important to have a good, strong, solid relationship with them. Um, and so... Um, I don't know how much the relationship has changed, um, but I do know that I value it enormously. One question that we always ask uh, novelists who we have on the podcast is whether they are a plotter or a plunger. So whether, uh, forgive us if that's the, the, not the vocabulary you use for this, but whether they, they're the kind of person who has the whole plot of the novel worked out beforehand up in post-its on the wall, um, or if they just, just plunge in and don't know, don't know where they're going. Where would you lie on I on that spectrum, I'm definitely, I'm definitely a plunger. Probably a toilet plunger, but but definitely a a, a plunger. Um, yeah, I, I I go feet in, and it, I feel it's kind of like being an explorer. Um, that what you're doing is you are casting yourself out to sea. You don't know where you're going to go, and you don't know how you're going to get there, but you know eventually you will reach land. You will find some sort of Galapagos of the imagination, and then you will explore that territory and go and go and go and plunge in deeper and deeper and deeper. Now, that's not to say that that's necessarily the way that someone should write. Uh, I know plenty of writers um, whom I admire in, enormously, who plot things out. They put up, you know, post-it notes and they make charts and pie charts and spider diagrams and do all those things. For me, I keep it all in my head. The rest of my life is a complete and utter mess, I have to tell you. If you saw my office, for instance, you would say, how does that person even like like exist in this crazy, you know, uh, you know, books here and 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 bills there and you know notes here and pens and all sorts of things scattered all over the place, but in my head, I can for whatever reason I can hold these complicated things together um, all all at once, and so um, I I basically plunge into the. Uh, the story, and um, I generally uh, also write from um, beginning to end. Uh, and I know that sounds sim simplistic, but what I mean by that is, I when when I finish a book, I will have finished the actual book. I don't go back in and start rearranging a whole lot. This is particularly true of a Paragon, which is a very fractured, intentionally fractured sort of book. That it. Um, 
it was uh, uh, written from in it's written in 1001 different cantos or sections um, but the way it is presented now is more or less the way it unfolded uh, in my uh, crazy messed up head and was uh, i was wondering was zebelt um a kind of influence on you in terms of the the pictures put in the manuscript and that like blurring of fiction or non-fiction or was, was that not something you were conscious of it wasn't something that i was conscious of but 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 uh, do I adore Zebald? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, I think one of the great voices of the 20th century and, and you know, continuing on into this century. Um, and what a loss he was um, to, to, to lose him at such a young age. Um, I think he was doing things with fiction that, um, that, that, that the rest of us were only sort of dreaming about. Um, but... Um, and I would also say the same thing about John Berger, who was a good friend, um, who was an extraordinary uh, innovator um, and a person who was prepared to go to the very edge and actually become the edge in so many ways. Uh, I also happen to work with people like Peter Carey. So I teach at Hunter College uh, with somebody like Peter Carey. I'm watching Peter and the way that he engages with the literary world is is pretty extraordinary. So it's... Um, um, you know, I have a lot of um, people who I, I consider to be my teachers, whether it be, you know, Louise Erdrich or Toni Morrison or uh, Edna O'Brien or, uh, you know, uh, people like that. Um, John Berger, Michael Ondaatje. Oh, my word. Michael Ondaatje, one of my great, great heroes. So um, I'm very deeply grateful to, 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 to all of them for sort of um, giving me a chance to develop my own voice. And does that plunger sensibility extend to your writing days? Do you kind of wait until inspiration strikes, so to speak, or do you keep office hours? Uh, you know what? Here's a perfect day. I wake up at like five o'clock in the morning, uh, and I stumble out of bed, go into my office without touching the internet, not looking at the, the football results from the night before, uh, not looking at the news, not even having a cup of coffee, and try to write in that dream time for about an hour or so, when the world is uncluttered and, 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 and my head is still free of all the appointments that I have for the rest of the day. Then I might have a cup of coffee and then work for a couple more hours and then, you know, um, then get the, the, the normalities of the day, kids off to school, although the kids are in college now, but get, get the normalities of the day taken care of, and then from about 10 o'clock till about one or two o'clock to write in whatever way I can. Um, and then um, maybe go for a run in the afternoon or even do, um, I can't believe I'm admitting to this, but, but um, even do an hour or two of yoga. Uh, <laughs> and then um, at, at about four o'clock in the afternoon is a very good time to have uh, you know, a, a glass of wine and to unwind. Uh, and then in the evening, uh, I like to, to uh, edit. Uh, that sounds to me like a perfect, perfect day. Do I ever get a perfect day? No. Um, so I just take it whatever way, whatever way I can. I'm on the road a lot now. In fact, you know, I'm doing this interview from 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 a car on the side of the highway in New York State. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> um, the, the glamour, indeed. The glamour, indeed. Uh, outside, at like a subway sandwich shop and 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 other uh, and and an SO or an Exxon station, but um, uh, I'm so I'm on the road a lot and I just sort of 
get whatever time um, I can and, and, and sort of I magpie it. Uh, I get a, a half hour here, a half hour there. Um, but really, I'm, I'm, I'm promoting this book and probably will be for the next few months. Um, I'm hoping that the coronavirus doesn't keep me away from um, the Edinburgh Book Fair. Um, unfortunately, uh, my Irish and English leg of the trip got postponed by the um, coronavirus um, and it sort of broke my heart. I really wanted to meet, um, you know, uh, to go home, if you will, um, and, and, and also to tour around, uh, you know, London, Manchester, Liverpool, Glasgow. I wanted to go go back and then go to Ireland. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to rearrange that uh, as time goes on. So, but my next trip is probably going to be um, in summer to go to go, go to Edinburgh. Um, and at that stage, uh, hopefully I'll be working on a new novel as well. We shall see. And could you tell us with a paragon a bit about the, the origin of the idea and then the, the process of working with these, these two men who are at the heart of the narrative? How did that work? How did that come to be and how did it work out? So a paragon, which is a shape with a countably infinite number of sides, was inspired by a trip to Israel and Palestine that I did with my nonprofit Narrative 4. Uh, I went with about 12 activists, musicians, uh, uh, philanthropists, people like that, and we toured around uh, Israel and the West Bank for about two weeks. Two days before I was due to leave, and already my heart had been blown wide open by the experience, I walked into this little office where two men are sitting there, one is named Rami, the other na is named Bassam, and they proceeded to tell me their stories uh, about how they lost their daughters to uh, the conflict. One man being Israeli, one man being Palestinian. And um, in truth, they they opened my ribcage in the most extraordinary way. And I, I very seldom had an experience where I heard somebody tell a story um, in that way. And that, that, that just cleaved me wide open. Um, what I didn't know is that they'd already told that story, uh, you know, twice before that same day to other groups and the day before that and the week before that and the years and years before that. I thought I was hearing it for the first time. And it, it was really quite beautiful to hear it. Um, and it was um, one of those moments um, when I knew I was changed. I didn't know what I was going to do with it, but I went back and started to write another novel, completely different novel about an Irish character who goes to the West Bank, et cetera, et cetera. But I didn't like it. It just wasn't working for me. And then a friend of mine said to me, well, what did, did you want to write about? What, you know, what, what touched you most about being in Palestine, being in Israel? And I said, well, meeting Rami and Bassam, of course. And, and she said to me, well, why don't you write about that? And, um, and that's where I started to think about, um, about doing this narrative and also doing it in a, because I was confused by, by um, the politics of, um, of Israel and Palestine. And um, in a certain way, I sort of render that confusion apparent in uh, the opening pages uh, of the novel. Um, and there's a reason for doing that, because I want the reader to be able to acknowledge the confusion. It's okay to be confused. It's okay not to know what's going on. It's okay not to know what is area A, area B, area C. What we really need to know 
is the elemental beating heart of what is going on there. And this is what Rami and Bassam get to uh, when they talk about occupation, when they talk about um, the loss of their children, when they talk about, uh, you know, trying to heal the world through uh, the act and the art of storytelling. And basically what they're saying is we need to know each other because if we do not know each other now, we will only know each other uh, six feet below ground. And uh, we do not want that to happen. And that's um, part of what drove me to to write this novel and to be, um, you know, involved in it as uh, uh, and 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 to have it capture my life for um, for so many years. Um, and I feel privileged to have met these men. They're pretty extraordinary human beings. And is the ultimate aim of a paragon to build empathy because that's the um, purpose of narrative for the nonprofit which you. Ah, uh, it's a good question. I don't know what the ultimate aim of my novel is. The ultimate, I suppose, is just to disrupt people, to try and get them asking questions again. Um, I hope that what what it does is that it um, sort of um, knocks you off your sense of comfortable balance and makes you go back in and question. Uh, and re-question what's going on, and to read other things, and and to to look at um, look at things differently, you know, and to acknowledge the humanity uh, of of everyone involved. But Sam talks about you know um, the idea that 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 you know so many Palestinians that he knows their 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 humanity is not acknowledged, uh, and one of the reasons why he agreed to work with me on this novel is because he knew that I could recognize the deep humanity that's going on between him and his friendship between Rami and Bassam. They really are uh, sort of, um, they are the best of friends. I, I, I watched them do the smallest things. They came on tour with me um, in the United States until the coronavirus stuff hit and they had to return to Israel and the West Bank respectively. And um, uh, I just watched them operate together, and they were just uh, the, the, they were the like incredible friends and and joined together by the idea that they want to use the force of their grief as a weapon for peace uh, and which is a, a a radical sort of idea and um, to watch them getting standing ovations in the ninety second street y in New York and in Boston and in Pittsburgh and in places around the country. Was a was a pretty extraordinary thing. It was, um, uh, and they deserve it. I think these, these these are people who, you know, one day might not be out of place on a podium in Stockholm uh, for the Nobel Peace Prize. They really are uh, extraordinary human beings. And Colin, we're coming up against our time limit now. But one swift final question from me: Could you tell us about your writing cupboard? Is it true that you you have this cupboard that you sit? with a laptop balanced on your lap, and this is where you conduct the work. I used to be in the closet, but now I'm out of the closet. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, literally, I used to sit in a cupboard, um, and it, because I, I found it concentrated me, but um, it was, it was um, I had to sit with my back straight and my legs uh, like right out in front of me and my, my laptop in, in, in my lap, but um, I found that it wasn't very good for my hamstrings nor my back, so now I am um, recalibrating my office, and I'm no longer uh, in the closet. I'm sort of standing up um, and at a, at a standing desk uh, whenever I can. Um, you know, I, was um, say, I hope you'd 
treated yourself to an ergonomic chair, but <laughs> apparently oh. not. Yeah, you listen. That's one of the things that I did do years ago, like um, twenty years ago, when I first got started making a little bit of money from writing. I spent, I think, at the time, which was quite a lot of money, uh, about six hundred dollars on a brilliant ergonomic chair that still lasts to this day. So, if there's a writing tip to to to, to anyone out there, um, you know, go get yourself a nice chair and don't sit in the closet. Um, or don't no, don't be in the closet, um, but um, yeah, get yourself a nice chair and um, and face the terror, as we say, of the blank page. Oh, on that wonderfully uh, wonderfully fitting note, um, thank you so much for your time and thank you for enduring the uh, cold shoulder of a highway to talk to us. Yeah, it was been been the most extraordinary uh, interview. Thank you so much. I mean, it's the strangest place. I'm sitting here in a car talking to, um, to, to, to my computer via Skype and to think that it will be out in the world and um, people get a chance to listen to it. Um, I hope I was able to concentrate enough and, and thank you for your, uh, your wonderful questions. I really appreciate it. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Colin, and wishing you all the best. Bye. Cheers now. Bye-bye. Hello, it's us again. Uh, Rachel, what did you think of that episode? I thought it was really fun, as I'm sure listeners can tell from the fact that you and I are laughing throughout it. Um, but I thought he was very interesting and candid. I liked the fact that he is a very much a plunger, kind of gets up and does sort of stream of consciousness writing. I thought that was a really interesting way of approaching things. And also on the challenges of distilling what's very raw and kind of ongoing conflict into fiction. How about you? Yeah, it was fascinating. It seems... We recorded it, we should say, I think it was like a couple of days before we went into lockdown, right? So we, he was he was in America, but we were um, at the Economist offices. So it seems slightly in another world that, that we did it. But I found, yeah, it was great. And clearly he's a real master of his stuff and he was very candid and, and very generous about it. So yeah, really good to have him on the show. Um, Rachel, what's been going on with you more generally? I have been editing the Booksmart section this week. So if it's terrible... No, Don't blame this me. Is, this is where you send <laughs> send, send complaints. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm just carrying on, to be honest. Um, trying to get used to this strange new reality. How about you? I'm good. Uh, I've been visiting hospitals for this big magazine story that I've been doing, which has been really fascinating, quite powerful. Um, getting acquainted with putting on all the gear and that sort of thing. But that's been interesting and has been... Uh, been nice to get out of the house as well. Um, so yeah, so that that's been good, and 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 so continuing with with various things. Anyway, this has been always take notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikam, and me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Our social media is by Owen Redahan. Our graphic design is by James Edgar, and our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes. On Twitter at Take Notes Always on Patreon at Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.